Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This is God's word. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, Again, we could all be different places if we wanted to be on a Sunday morning. There are plenty of great brunches to be found in Charleston. There are... uh, well, if you're like me, you're nursing a little bit of allergies uh, right now, and uh, you could just stay in bed. But if we want to know God, we've got to listen to His Word. So I'm glad you're here. Glad you could be with us this morning. Let's pray as we turn to His Word. Father, we need you to speak. We have so many competing voices in our lives, we have noisy consciences. But in your word, we have the good news of Jesus, so we pray that you would open our eyes to see it. Even this morning, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever had a work of art that you really love? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a painting. Maybe it's some grand work of Baroque uh, music. Maybe you're really into Bach, I don't know. Maybe it's just a book you really love. Maybe it's a movie that you go back to over and over and over again that you can't help but watch. Maybe it's a a specific design play that Clemson runs. I don't know. Um, But the thing about art, whether it's high art or low art, is that that what you love about a great work is that you can go back to it, and it's almost like like it's a mystery. Like there are always more layers, more things to discover. This is why art students always go back to the Mona Lisa, right? It's been around forever, everybody's seen it a million times, but what on earth is her expression about? This is why you go back to a great album over and over and over again. Now, there's, there's music that comes and goes, there are movies that come and go, they have their moment, and then everybody forgets about them. We just had the Oscars... And every year, there's some performance, there's some movie that wins a bunch of Oscars, and then nobody remembers it three years later. But there's some that endure. 
And Jesus introduces here an idea of mystery. Van Gogh called him the great artist that worked not so much in paint or in clay, but in living flesh. And the mysteries are slowly being revealed to us in the Gospel of Mark. We began it last week talking about the the big universal cosmic story that Mark was introducing us to. And here we're beginning to understand slowly the shape of that story. And I really want to see this morning, I want us to look at this morning, two aspects of that mystery. We're going to come back to mystery quite a bit. But there's two aspects of what we need to see. First, the mysterious calling that God has for His disciples. And secondly, the mysterious authority of Jesus. So first, let's think about this mysterious calling. You probably know if you've grown up in the church, this story, Jesus shows up to a bunch of fishermen. It's Peter and Andrew who are brothers and and James and John who are brothers. And they're fishermen, they know what they're doing, they're out there fishing, and he calls them to follow him, which is a little bit unusual for a rabbi. Rabbis didn't go find their students. Their students were amazed by what they taught and followed them. But Jesus instead goes out and finds those students that he wants. And did you notice how immediately they respond? They get up and go. I've always wondered about this. In fact, there's a little detail, right? At the, did you notice that, uh, what is it, verse, um, verse 20, that Zebedee, James and John's dad, is left sitting in the boat. The hired hands are hanging around, but his two boys have just taken off. And this is especially strange in a, a traditional culture that, is, that emphasizes the importance of family so much that they would just leave. And maybe that's something to do with what Jesus said, that he's going to make them fishers of men. Now, obviously, this means something to fishermen, right, that they, they immediately have an idea of what this means, but it also means something in the Old Testament context in which all of them thought. There's a number of different places, and I'm going to rattle off a bunch of these. Jeremiah 16, 16, Ezekiel 29, 4, Ezekiel 38, 4, Amos 4, 2, Habakkuk 1, 14. If you want those references, email me. But the point is there's a number of places in the Old Testament where God is portrayed as somebody who goes fishing for people. But the key is it is always a metaphor for judgment. Isn't that strange? If you're used to hearing this story, isn't that odd? We're used to thinking about this, of course, as a passage about learning to evangelize. And we'll get there. But there is this theme over and over and over again in the Old Testament that when God goes fishing, He is judging. He is pulling people out for judgment. But if we think about what Jesus has already said, at the end of the passage last week, He was announcing the coming of the kingdom, and he played that old, old prophetic tune again, repent and believe. Turn. Turn away from sin and believe 
In other words, judgment was always there in the background of the message of the kingdom. If the end has arrived, if the kingdom is coming, judgment is part of it. But there's still something to be admired about their leaving, isn't there? Their willingness to go. Maybe they have weighed what Jesus is saying, the implications of it, and they go. So this is, again, a classic passage about evangelism, about being called to evangelism. And, of course, that is accurate. That's true. This is about being called to share the good news of Jesus. But sometimes we obscure the difficulty of that task. That sometimes this becomes a, a call to excitement, but has very little to do with counting the cost, as Jesus puts it elsewhere. And also, it's, it's essential that we understand that this is not a call, this is not a promise to, for what you will do, for what your efforts will produce, but this is a promise of what Jesus is doing. Did you notice that the turn of phrase is, I will make you become fishers of men. In other words, Jesus is the one who's doing the action. And he is working it out in our lives. It is a process. And look, these, if that isn't obvious, think about these disciples. Do they know what is going on? No. It will be clear all throughout Mark, they've got no idea the depths of this gospel. <laughs> they know a few things. And Jesus will fill out their numbers in chapter 3 to 12 that he really is uh, focused on. And in chapter 6, we'll see down the road that he does send them out to evangelize. He sends them out on a mission. And they're preaching a gospel that they don't understand fully. I mean, that ought to be humbling. The people that are walking around with Jesus... 24-7 are still figuring this thing out. It ought to be humbling to us, I mean, and, and maybe puts it in perspective. That God is, of course, not looking for those who are perfect, not looking for those who are done with the process. But in fact, the fruit of the process is that we learn to share. It is a sign, in other words, of growing maturity that we learn to share the gospel. There's a, there's a guy named Leslie Newbigin who was a missionary in the mid-20th century to India. He was a British guy. He spent uh, the better part of his career in India. And then in the, the 1970s, he returned to England and started to realize that, in fact, it wasn't so much that India needed to be converted, though it did, but that the West also needed to be converted. He wrote a bunch of books, and in one of his books, he, he, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, he says this. He says, There has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It's been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification. In other words, we're told we should go, right? And yet, it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy. Mission begins with a kind of, if, if one looks at the New Testament evidence, one gets another impression. Mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot possibly be suppressed. It must be told. You get his point that while it is true that we're told to go, to go 
the impression you get from the Apostle Paul, for example, is that he can't help but preach. In fact, he says, woe to me if I don't. In other words, it is, again, a sign of maturity that you will, as you grow in Christ, you will want to share the good news. And there's a, there's a bit of a sad irony, after 10 years working with college students, that sometimes the people who are most excited to share are the least mature. Now, of course, there's a little bit of their own pride bound up in that. Uh, of course, they, uh, their lives, unlike many of us as we get older, are filled with people coming and going. In our lives, as you get a little older, tend to seem a little stagnant. You kind of know the people you know. But that only makes the point maybe more obvious, doesn't it? It's maybe more telling how immature we are, that we do know those people, and we're so often scared to share. Now, I, I think on the one hand, we could ask this question, who are you sharing the gospel with? And it's important for you to reflect, you and I both, on who we're being intentional with. That's an important question, but I'm afraid that that might miss the point, or the more important point, the more basic point. So where is your heart? If I do find that I'm not intentional, if I do find that I am sometimes hesitant to share the gospel, and I do find that sometimes, what's wrong with my heart? Why isn't the beauty of the gospel captivating my imagination? Why isn't it animating everything about my life? In other words, the place to begin to work on that is not by creating a bigger to-do list. It is to reflect on Jesus. To reflect on Him and all that He has done for you. And you might say the flip side of this is to ask the question, what are we afraid of leaving behind? Because we're always called to leave something behind. Not just Peter and Andrew, James and John, but all of us. Maybe we're afraid that we won't know the answers. If I start talking about this, what about all those questions they're going to ask? Now that's pretty simple. I mean, there's a lot to know. But there are plenty of resources for that. And certainly you all have my email address and you can ask me for resources on that. But it's usually something deeper, isn't it? The reputation that we feel like might be at stake. The comfortable relationships that we have. The awkwardness we're afraid might enter in. How about the loss of control? I don't know what's going to happen if I start that conversation. We always have to be asking that. that there's two sides of this, right? Why, don't, why doesn't the beauty of Jesus captivate me, but also what am I afraid I will lose in that process? But we all lose something. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who you might know, is the, was a theologian, a German theologian during World War II, who ended up deciding finally that he had to get involved with a plot to assassinate Hitler which didn't work, and he ended up in jail and executed. But in his book called The Cost of Discipleship, he says, when Christ calls a man, 
He calls them to come and die. Doesn't get more blunt than that, does it? To come and die. And there's no better illustration of this than Peter himself. You know, Peter will stand out as the main disciple. But, uh, but when this all starts, Peter has all kinds of ideas of what Jesus as the Messiah should be. And many of them are misguided. In fact, over and over and over again, in all of the Gospels, but again, we'll see this in Mark, his own arrogance and, paradoxically, his own cowardice are going to come up over and over and over again. Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet, through incredible humiliation and suffering, Peter grows, and he becomes one of the key leaders of the church. Actually, there's a fascinating fact about the Gospel of Mark. This is probably Peter's account of the good news. There's an there's a old, old, old church father, a guy named Papias, who, who learned from the Apostle John. So he was very early in the church. And he said that this was Peter's account that he had given to, to Mark. Uh, we know about this guy, Mark, throughout the New Testament. On several, you know, several different occasions he pops up. But he's associated with Peter in a number of places. In Acts 12, when Peter is arrested and miraculously sprung from jail, he goes to the house of Mark where the church is praying. In, at the end of Peter's letter, 1 Peter, he tells us that he's in Rome with Mark. And then curiously, in his second letter, in 2 Peter 1.15, Peter, Peter says that he is making every effort to make sure that his witness is written down, is recorded. So, okay, all of this, that's a little background information. Maybe that seems like a rabbit trail here. But get this point. Peter keeps telling these stories in which he consistently looks like a buffoon. (laughs) He's consistently telling the story about when his own pride and his own cowardice, indeed, when his own betrayal of Jesus is front and center. And he's leading this church. This is what the process of growth looks like. This is a man who has learned what the sacrifices of following Jesus are like. The gospel, it's, the gospel of Mark itself is a testimony to that. That Peter is not afraid of what he might lose. And in fact, you know, church tradition tells us he was then executed later in Rome for following Christ. Peter is a great illustration of this basic point. That to share the good news does require that we leave something behind. But if it's not just going to be a thing to do on your list, then it has to be motivated by being captivated by the beauty of Christ. If it's not just going to become a project, if your friends, your family are not just going to be something to do on your list... If you actually want to be able to communicate this in love, it has to be something we come back to because we're captivated by it. Because the mystery of what Jesus has accomplished is so profound, and there's new riches to be found there every time we come back to it, that we can't help but talk about it. 
It is always on our mind. It is always on our hearts. So we see this mysterious calling. But then Jesus begins teaching. And the mystery of his authority starts to come to the center. So we get very briefly that Jesus, in verse 21, shows up to a synagogue on the Sabbath and starts teaching. Mark doesn't tell us anything about what he said on this occasion. Instead, what he gives us is the reaction of the crowd, the reaction of the congregation there. They're blown away. They're amazed. Because Jesus teaches like no other scribe that they've known. None of the other rabbis walking around are teaching the way Jesus teaches. And it's not because Jesus is more polished rhetorically. Maybe he is, I don't know. But the point is that he doesn't teach in the same way because the way that the scribes taught was sort of endless footnotes. This guy said this, and this guy said that, and this rabbi said this, and this rabbi said that. And I'm going to weave all this together, and I'm going to give you what I think is the answer, what I think this passage is saying. And in fact, I mean, even if, in fact, now, even if you go to rabbinical schools, this is still the way things are taught, more or less, that you've got to cite all these different scribes. But Jesus doesn't cite anybody. He turns to God's Word, and He declares it, that this is from Him. Jesus, in other words, claims to have the authority of Scripture in and of itself. Elsewhere in Luke, for example, in Luke 4, the first time Jesus goes in Luke, and maybe this is the same occasion, uh, the first time he goes to teach, he opens up a scroll of Isaiah, starts reading about the blind receiving sight and the lame being healed, things happening, and he says, this is fulfilled today. If I start telling you that all that, that you know, everything, if I start reading Revelation, tell you this is fulfilled, you would rightly think I'm crazy. But they're blown away because they realize that Jesus is claiming an authority that nobody else teaching can claim. And then, and then, the proof is in the pudding, right? Somebody possessed by a demon is there or shows, comes, shows up in the middle of it, and Jesus casts the demon out. And they are blown away, right? Like, that is, the, that is a sure sign that Jesus is who he says he is. Although they're still working that out. But if he has that authority, then surely he has authority to say what the Scriptures are teaching. And notice this little episode with the, the demons. There are, there are fuller stories later in Mark about Jesus' encounters with those who are demon-possessed. And we'll get more into that as we go, but you notice this. The demons immediately recognize Jesus for who he is. You know, later on in, in the New Testament, James will say that, yeah, you know, the demons know about Jesus. They've got their theology correct. They just don't believe it. They know what's true. They just don't believe this. It's not there. They don't have faith in it, in other words. Not, they know the facts. They don't have faith in him. And here you see that borne out, right? This demon 
declares that he's the Holy One of Israel. Now, this is a kind of pretty formal title. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually the Holy One throughout the Old Testament shifts. At times, it refers to Israel as the one who has been set apart by God. Other times, it refers, of course, to God as the one who is the Holy One over Israel. Other times, it seems to refer possibly to the Messiah. But, of course, Jesus is all of those things. He is God. He is also everything Israel was supposed to be. And because of that, he is the Messiah. So he is all of those things. The demon sees it for certain. And then Jesus sends him out, tells him to be silent, to leave. And there's a theme that starts to unfold here that we will see unfolding in, throughout the first eight chapters of Mark. In other words, the first half of Mark, where Jesus keeps telling people not to talk about his identity. Kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, Jesus is going to do some things that make waves. But he's really careful about people, demons especially, <laughs> But he even tries to put the lid on some other followers who start to realize who he is. He, says, he keeps telling him, don't talk about that. Don't talk about that. Until chapter 8, when finally he turns to the disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And if you know that episode, you know, finally Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And everything changes in the second half, but we'll get there. <laughs> But for the first half of Mark, Jesus is trying to keep a lid on this. Now, honestly, I'm not sure I know why. Lots of commentators have made lots of comments about this, as you can imagine. But it does seem true that one of the things that Jesus is doing while he's biding his time, keeping his identity semi-hidden, is that he is building his followers. He is building the church. He is building those who will be the witnesses to what he has done. Jesus is biding his time for maybe lots of reasons, but certainly so that the church is preserved. So that he has time to build up his disciples. And they're going to need every ounce of that. And they're still going to fail. But they will know who he is. Jesus wants this time so that his fame can spread, so that he can care for his followers. So that by the time that he shows what judgment looks like, by the time that he begins judgment, by the time that he goes to the cross so that all of those that have faith in him would be judged, They have a much fuller understanding. They have categories. They have ways of making sense out of what will follow, out of his suffering and death and his resurrection. Jesus, in other words, continues to operate mysteriously for most of his ministry so that when he finishes his ministry, they will have categories. His followers will have categories for what he's done. 
In other words, they need him to, they need, sorry, he needs them to listen to him for a long time, for several years, living with him, so that when he begins judgment on the house of God by taking it on himself, and when he undoes death, By breaking the power of sin and evil, they will understand what he's doing. In other words, Jesus wants them to grapple with his authority for good reason. He wants them to stop and think about what is he doing. He wants them to puzzle over it so that they'll have the faith to endure. And I guess, like, (laughs) isn't that what being a disciple of Jesus is like? I mean, don't you have to endure things? Don't you have to puzzle over what God is doing in order to grow? Isn't that the secret that a lot of generic evangelicalism doesn't tell us. Isn't that a secret that doesn't make much sense to the world? Is that we have to endure much in order to grow. And look, how, I, I guess my question then is how do we dodge Jesus' authority in our lives? What are ways in which we are avoiding Jesus' authority? I suppose there's a kind of immoral way to do it. And this would be, you know, there's an outright way of saying, well, I'm just not going to listen to what Jesus is talking about. I'm not going to do what he tells me. And that's obvious enough. I'm not going to grapple with his authority because I'm running my life. It's a free country. I'll do what I want to do. Okay. But there are plenty of us who are maybe not so outright, but more subtly, thinking, I know what God says, I know what Jesus has taught, but maybe he doesn't mean what he says. Maybe what he tells me about what I do with my body, maybe it's not exactly what he means. Maybe what Jesus says to do with my money, maybe he wasn't, he didn't mean all that stuff that he said. Maybe he doesn't mean that I'm supposed to endure so much difficulty. Do you get what I'm saying? There are subtle ways in which, you know, you don't have to be a non-Christian to reject Jesus' authority. We do it very subtly and very tactfully, very often, those of us who are Christians. It's so easy for us to convince ourselves, especially if nobody else is going to be bothered by it, That it's not a big deal. But of course, you can also avoid Jesus' authority by making yourself the moral authority. Right? This is the way of legalism, isn't it? To imagine, that is to say, to buy into the delusion that I'm a good person. That I deserve everything that I'm getting. 
And when things aren't going well, that I, des- <laughs> that I, I deserve better than what I am getting. I mean, this is an easy delusion, right? Many of you know Flannery O'Connor and her work. Well, she has a, a little novel called Wise Blood. And there's a reason why Flannery O'Connor didn't write many novels, because it's so symbolically dense that it's, it's tough going. But there's a character in it named Hazel Motes, and he starts to preach the Church of Christ without Christ. Um, come on, that's a good Southern joke. Church of Christ without Christ. But this is, what, this is how he's described. He says, there was a black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. He knew by the time he was 12 years old that he was going to be a preacher. But later he saw Jesus move from tree to tree in the back of his mind, sure of his foot, a ragged figure, motioning him to turn around and come off into the dark, where he was not sure of his footing, where he might be walking on water and not know it, and then suddenly know it and drown. Get the idea? He's a, he thinks that the way he can avoid Jesus is to avoid sin because then his spiritual life is under his control. And how many Christians try to reinforce this delusion that we are good people and that we are always doing what's right and in the end we're just avoiding dealing with Jesus because Jesus is driving this home over and over and over again that you are in need. You may not be demon-possessed. I mean, to my knowledge, nobody in this room is, but you are still just as desperately in need. Because who, does Jesus, who is Jesus going to class with over and over and over again but the religious leaders who think they are good enough? Those are the people that Jesus has his most pointed criticism for. Those are the people that he clashes with over and over and over again. And look, you don't have to be religious to do this. There are irreligious ways to convince yourself that you're a good person. Have you not noticed the moral climate in which we now live? (laughs) Has not gotten less morally serious, but even more judgmental? Have you not noticed this? I hope you have. There's a, there's a helpful little book called Seculosity by a guy named David Zoll. Uh, and he goes through all these categories. He takes the word religiosity and he says, we're not religious like that. Instead, we're secular and we have all these other ways in which we try to convince ourselves that we're a good person. Do you want his list? I can tell you. Busyness, romance, parenting, being ahead technologically, working hard, playing hard, food, and politics. Aren't these all ways in which we try to convince ourselves that we're, the, we're a good person? And he says this, he says, the new religions go by different names, but function more or less the same, maintaining all the demand and much of the ritual, but none of the mercy You see, the power of the gospel is to admit that we need Jesus' authority in our lives. That we need somebody who tells it to us straight. 
This is why we like to avoid it, because we don't want to hear that. We want to be in control. But the mystery of Jesus' authority that's going to unravel is that the ultimate way He will express His claim on our lives is not by grinding our conscience down, but by giving His own life for us. Are you scared of Jesus' mysterious authority? It's unsettling. Like Hazel Motes, we're scared of what it might mean that we might be called off somewhere into some uncomfortable relationship, into saying something difficult, into having to spend time with people we kind of would rather not spend time with. But listen, Jesus' authority is not expressed by beating you up. It is by loving you to the end. Jesus' claim on you was given in His body and in His blood. Would you rather be under the authoritative claims of a political party or under the king who gave his life for you? Would you rather be under the authority of a yoga instructor who's going to harass you when you don't show up for class or under the authority of someone who gave his life for you? Would you rather be under the authority of all the parenting blogs that don't even make coherent sense together, but to always tell you that you're doing it wrong. Or under the authority of someone who gave his life for you. You get the point. We could go on and on about that, about all the authorities that we submit to. But there is only one that we need, and there is only one that gives life, and that is Jesus. So won't you follow him? Let's follow him to this table and pray. Father, we thank you that you've given your son, that he loves us, that you love us more than we can possibly comprehend. That there is no authority that is more gentle, yet more risky. No other authority that demands so much and yet gives so much than your Son. So even as we come to this table, Lord, we pray that you would make it plain. That you would remind us yet again of Jesus and his life given on our behalf. And even now that he is raised up and waiting to bring that fullness of life to us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.